You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Thank you all. Uh, it is great to be here. So my, uh, my cousin, uh, little Susan Webb, was, uh, I guess she's my second cousin, was baptized this morning, so it was great to be here for that as well. Uh, yeah, so Cameron told me that that he talked last Sunday, taught a little bit about uh, creation and Sabbath rest and creation, and so I'm going to uh, kind of continue with that theme here. Um, <clears throat> I'll tell you, I've got, um, I always have something for you to read, uh, but I'll start out, I'll kind of preface my comments with this, that, so a few years ago, um, we had a bit, uh, we, we kind of had a life change. So I've been a, a PhD researcher in church history and and uh, taught a few college classes. And we moved back to Alabama to, uh, so that I could work in my family business with with uh, my cousins. And so we had a big life change, you know, change of job, uh, change of location. And there were a lot of good things that came came along with that. Uh, reunited with a lot of old friends from uh, from home. But you know, one of the one of the funny things that came along with that that I didn't expect is that uh, life is just I'm just a lot more tired than I than I ever was before. And I suspect you know that has something to do with some of the changes, has something to do with the change in job, has something to do with with our family, you know, just children getting older. Uh, we have so we have a ninth grader, a seventh grader, a fifth grader, and a second grader. So there's just a lot of busyness, you know, in our life. Um, and so the things that I had learned years before about rest and, and Sabbath rest kind of became more poignant to me over the last few years. And so I'm, I'm going to share with you just, just a few of those things that I've been thinking about. I've got, uh, yeah, I've got a handout I want to read, read from here. Got, get that around. You know, I printed off 30 copies of this that may not have been enough. So you may need, yeah, you may need to share if you can. The, the beginning of this, the front side, look at this. Uh, this is just kind of a little snip from a, a book review that was in the New Yorker. I think this was just a couple of years ago, 2014. That's right. So this is a book review of a, um, a study that a woman did on how, how Americans use their time and especially their free time. And it just kind of gets to the first point that I'd like to talk about, which is uh, the problem of rest for us in, in our life and our society today. Um, I got three points for you. I got. I want to talk about the problem of rest. That's what this speaks to. And then I want to talk about. I want to. I want to make two points about what the kind of the Christian conception, Christian practice of rest is, and how that, um, and what that means for us. So let me just read for you here. Uh, Y'all can read along with me from this this book review. It starts out here. Uh, it says in the winter of of 1928, John Maynard Keynes. He was an economist. Uh, composed a short essay that took the long view. It was titled Economic Possibilities of our, for Our Grandchildren. And in it, Keynes imagined what the world would look like a century hence. By 2028, he predicted, the standard of life in Europe and the United States would be so improved that no one would need to worry <clears throat> about making money. Are we, is there any, anyone close to that yet? <laughs> I mean, uh, so he, uh, he says, our grandchildren, Keynes reckoned, would work about three hours a day 
and even that reduced schedule would represent more labor than was actually necessary. Um, so I, this is one of those things where I, I, you know, I, I take a kind of perverse pleasure in, in looking at these utopian projections. Um, they just never come out like, like people expect them to. So the, this, this book review and this book goes on. Uh, obviously, this does, didn't come about for any of us, and it's not even on the horizon. Um, and uh, this woman, this this woman that that wrote the book, she she goes on to kind of describe what she found about American society and American work and rest habits, and and talk about how people are just you know that much more busy, that much more exhausted than than they were in even in Keynes's day. And uh, let me continue on with this book review. She says uh, one theory she the, the author entertains early on is that busyness has acquired social status. The busier you are, the more important you seem. Thus, people compete to be, or at least to appear to be, harried. A researcher she consults at the University of North Dakota, Anne Burnett, has collected five decades' worth of holiday letters and found that they've come to dwell less and less on the blessing of the season and more and more on how jam-packed the pre previous year has been. Based on this archive, Burnett has concluded that keeping up with the Joneses now means trying to outschedule them. In one recent letter, a mother boasts of schlepping her kids to so many activities that she drives 100 miles a day. I'm sure, I'm sure no one's ever said that. There's a real busier-than-thou attitude, Burnett says. I like, I like that phrase, busier-than-thou, because we know, I mean, we're good good Protestant Christians, we're not supposed to say or even think that we are holier than thou, but we have these little workarounds, right? <laughs> and busier than thou is kind of one of those workarounds. Um, it's a way of saying, yeah, I'm, I am more important, I, I can outschedule you, I've got more going on in my life. Um, it speaks, though, I think, to what the problem of, uh, the problem of rest in our society, and the problem is just this. The, the problem is that the problem of rest is a really a problem of work for us. And here's the problem is that work has been overvalued in our society. I think that's simply what it comes down to. Work has been overvalued in our society. Um, that's what this kind of busier than thou uh, mentality <laughs> <laughs> That's what <coughs> this is my boss here. Yeah, this is a del this is thin ice this is thin ice, right? <laughs> Y'all know this is practical now, don't you? Yeah. Um stay with me here. Just give me did anyone make the Alan Jacobs talks? Al Alan Jacobs um you know, was here. Advent hosted Alan Jacobs a few, uh, a few, I guess, months ago now, and he and he said he he Alan Jacobs talked about this uh, this event where someone was uh, he was at an academic conference and and um, and someone was saying something controversial at the front of the room, and and the guy in, and the guy in the chair, you know, he he comes up and objects immediately, and um, the guy at the front of the room says, "Hey, just give it five minutes." So I'm kind of asking, give me five minutes here, you know, just give, and you can disagree uh, uh, after that. Um, 
here's here's what I really want to get to. We do have a problem of rest, and uh, to I want to speak to what the Christian conception of rest is, uh, and how it differs from from the way we we look at work and rest today. Um, two points I have for you then on what the Christian conception of rest is, and the first one is this: is that rest in the Christian in Christian history, Christian practice, in the Bible, rest is actually more ultimate or more important than work. That's my first point. Let me look at something else with you here. Uh, turn, turn your uh, page over here. So this is just a little snip from St. Augustine's Confessions. Uh, we're just going to read the first one there. The very first paragraph from book, book one it ends with a with a pretty well known, a pretty famous saying. Um, you probably will have heard it before. I want to just take this this these few sentences apart for us. Um, would someone read that for us? That very first paragraph, one one. All right. <clears throat> you are great, Lord, and highly to be praised. Great is your power, and your wisdom is immeasurable. Man, a little piece of your creation, desires to praise you. A human being bearing his mortality with him, carrying with him the witness of his sin and the witness that you resist the proud. Nevertheless, to praise you is the desire of man, a little piece of your creation. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests. That last sentence there, our heart is restless, uh, until it rests in you is, is one you may have, have heard before. So this is how Augustine begins the very be- this is the very beginning of his kind of spiritual autobiography. And interestingly, in the, at the very end of the Confessions, we're not going to read the whole thing here today. But the very I mean the very 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 end, he comes back to this idea of rest and a Sabbath rest and a, an eternal Sabbath rest. And so this idea of rest kind of frames Augustine's discussion of his life. Let me point out just a couple of things, though, uh, a couple of themes that come up in this first paragraph. First of all, um, notice that Augustine says this. He says um, that we desire to praise God. Um, What is he saying when he says that? What are the implications of that? That we desire to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That we have a. Uh, what, what does it mean that we have a desire to do something? Where does that desire come from? How we were made, like our longing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. How we were made. If we were made to do something, we yes, we long to do it. Uh, and that's what Augustine, that's what Augustine is saying. He's um, God has made us a certain way, and because He is made us a certain way we have a desire to 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 live to act accordingly and the way god has made us the thing that god has has uh made us to desire to do is to praise him just simply simply that it's a kind of god-given innate impulse um look at look at uh what he says then in that last sentence He's, uh, he says just this, you have made us for yourself. That last sentence there. You take pleasure 
you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself. Again, that same thing that this is what this is actually what God has made us to do. The the um, analogy that I that I always like to use when I'm kind of talking about something like this is is a clock or a watch. A, um, a watch can perform a lot of functions, right? I mean, it's 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 a piece of jewelry. It's kind of stylish, and we and we like them and enjoy them for that. But a watch is made to do what? Tell time. And really, to the de- degree that it tells time well, it does what it's made to do, doesn't it? Right. And when it does that, when it does that well, we praise it. Um, I mean, we recognize the goodness of it and how and and uh, its its excellency. Well, praising God is what we were made to do. That's what Augustine is saying. Now, here's the consequence of that. When we when we do what we were made to do, uh, when we when we do what God has given us the desire to do. We find rest. That's what Augustine says. That's what he's describing as the state of rest. Uh, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. To do what we were made to do is to come to this state of rest uh, that, that Augustine is, is um, so concerned with. And we find pleasure in that. It's, it's actually our delight and joy, then, to, to rest in God. Um, what we see here then, this, the point about Christian rest that, that Augustine is making, is that it has a kind of God-ordered direction. It's, it's, uh, it's focused on God. It is, it is for the sake of God. Um, that's, that's kind of my first point about this, about this Christian idea of rest, and Augustine really exemplifies that well. Um, I might say this uh, about kind of our work-rest um, uh, predicament in, in our kind of contemporary meritocracy. And, and the term meritocracy speaks to that as well. You all know, it, I mean, you're familiar with that term. Um, you know, we don't have an aristocracy anymore, right? You, you've heard uh, people like um, um, uh, Ross Douthat and, and, and people like this always kind of Kind of uh, hard, you know, coming down hard on the American meritocracy. That, that the people that rule, the people that get to make decisions, are the people that merit it. That that basically work the hard and earn the most and have the most awards. Um, you know, there's this tremendous pressure for us to to, to work hard uh, and to achieve. And we pass that on to our children, and it kind of keeps it kind of keeps going, right? Um, it is possible, though. I think in our situation. To say that we've we've made an idol of our work. That when you when you elevate work to a position that's even higher or more important than than rest, the rest that we were made for, what what essentially we've done is is made an idol of our work. The next the next passage I want to look at with you uh, speaks to that, and it speaks to this point that I'm making that that the Christian in the Christian uh, in the Christian mind the Christian idea. Rest is is more ultimate uh, than work. Um, this is the story of uh, of Mary and Martha, story in Luke ten, and and it's a story about Christian hospitality. I'll tell you what, let me, um, uh, Gil. How long how long do we have? Okay. So we have okay, we have plenty of time. I'll just, I'm just going to read a little more of it for you than I'd planned. Then just give you some context here. 
And if you want to turn with me to Luke 10, that's, that's what I want to look at here. Um, so this is Luke 10. In, in, in this, in this, at this point in, in the book of Luke, what's going on is Jesus is, uh, Jesus is making his life goes from Galilee to Jerusalem. And uh, there is this kind, of, this kind of geographic movement to Jesus' life, and he ends his life, of course, in Jerusalem. He's from Galilee, but, but ends his life in Jerusalem. And what we have here in, in, in Luke 10 is where this movement um, begins, and he begins to make his way towards Jerusalem. Um, uh, it says, this is actually Luke 9, a few, a few verses later, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, it's Jesus. He's, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Um, we move then into, this is kind of a travel story. This is kind of a, a, a travel narrative in the midst of Jesus' life. You know, uh, it's, it is interesting to me, um, travel narratives, travel stories are kind of their own uh, genre. And, and there used to be, in the, the period that I studied, 19th century America and Europe, um, I mean, this was just very common that, that people would tell their story, the stories of their traveling. And um, so you, you have all these, especially Europeans, coming to the United States and writing their, writing their memoirs of how things went on their travels. Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, Democracy in America, is probably one of, it's not, that's not really a travel narrative, but it's kind of his ob- observations of what went on. And this is kind of Jesus' travel narrative. Um, what he, along the way, what he does is it's not just Jesus that's going to be moving. It's not just Jesus that, that's, that begins this, uh, this pilgrimage. He actually sends out his he sends out missionaries, and they are also going to be traveling. And at the at the beginning of, of chapter ten, this is the sending of the seventy two, which are seventy two missionaries uh, that Jesus sends out. And listen to listen to how he describes this, um, how Luke what Luke says about what's going on here. He says, uh, after this, the Lord appointed seventy two others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever, whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will, re- it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. So there's two things going on here. Jesus is moving, and his, his, uh, his apostles, his disciples are moving. They're, they're going out into the world. And there's, an, there's a, a kind of reciprocal um, action then uh, and that is hospitality. That Jesus is sending out his his missionaries, and let's say we, uh, the people, um, are to receive them with hospitality. Um, they are Jesus commends. Uh, he tells his mission his these missionaries don't even take another don't even take your wallet with you a second uh, don't don't take another a second cloak because um, it is it's on us. To, to show them hospitality, and people will show you hospitality, and and then you receive a blessing for that. So hospitality is key in this in this passage in Luke as well. Not just the not just the role of the traveler, but the role of the host who receives the traveler. And there's and there's a certain blessing to to the host as well. 
Now, um, skip down to the end of chapter 10. So that's that's kind of our context, this context of travel, uh, of, of mission, of movement, as well as the as well as the virtue of hospitality, Christian hospitality. And now uh, it's not just, again, Jesus's missionaries, but he himself is, is on the way. And so look, look at this at the end of with me um, at the end of chapter 10. Luke says, and now as they are on their way, Jesus entered a village. Okay, Jesus is on his way as well. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Uh, this, I, this idea of hospitality is, is a kind of a southern idea as well. It's not just um, a Middle Eastern idea. Um, what was the story of the of the Navy SEAL who um, who is who's who is uh, his whole lone survivor, right? Y'all y'all remember this story? Has anyone actually read the book? Um, the the quality of the writing is about what you would expect from a Navy SEAL. He's <laughs> he was probably better at being a SEAL than a writer, but one of the I mean the theme that comes across. Uh, clearly in, in, in his story, uh, Marcus Luttrell, right? And this was made into a movie. The theme that comes across very clearly in the story is this theme of hospitality. That he, this, this seal is the lone survivor from his platoon being attacked by the Taliban. And he enters into this house. I can't remember, um, you know, what tribe this was in Afghanistan, but he, but he enters into one of the houses in the village and these villagers take him in against the Taliban and will not let him go. And their claim is the claim, this ancient claim, that that uh, to hospitality. Um, that the the person in the and hospitality works very simply this way: the person with much is supposed to share with with the person with less, right? And a traveler always has less. You just can't carry you just can't carry your whole life on your back, can you? Um, same thing is true in uh, of our kind of. That's, that's kind of the southern virtue of hospitality as well. There's a, um, there's a book called Lanterns on the Levee. Uh, there's a, he's, this is uh, Walker Percy's uncle, I believe it is. He's an attorney in Mississippi, and he, and he lives on the Mississippi Delta. And he explains exactly how southern hospitality originated, that people will be traveling up and down the river. And that was just kind of how life and business was conducted on the Delta. And it was your obligation, you know, if one of your friends from, from down south was you know on a business trip up the river that you would entertain and 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 show hospitality to that person because that's just kind of how things were especially in a in a agricultural community where you didn't have so many city centers what you had is these long distances between urban centers and so you know people had to stop for the night they usually and and if someone stopped at your house at your at your farm you were obligated to take care of them uh, to show them hospitality that's what Jesus is commending to his to his disciples and that's exactly what what uh, Martha and Mary are are attempting to do right something Jesus has 
has, has, has commended, something he's taught them to do, something he's promised a blessing uh, for. And yet the story doesn't turn out like you would expect after all that, does it? Um, what does Martha do? What does Martha do? What does she do? She's busy. Yeah. Yeah. She shows hospitality, doesn't she? And that's, and that is, that's, that's, uh, that's her labor. That's her work. Uh, what does Mary do? Mary does nothing. <laughs> Seemingly. She simply sits at Christ's feet. Um, what is happening here? I mean, Mary is not the host, is she? I mean, Martha's trying to be the host. What's happening here then? What's going on here? What's going on is that this this idea of hospitality, Jesus is now turning it on his head, on its head. Jesus is now serving Mary, isn't he? He's feeding Mary. He's feeding Mary with his words. And the host has now become the uh, the served, the one being served, right? This And it kind of encapsulates um, how the gospel does turn things on its head, um, even good things like hospitality. Jesus is not saying don't show hospitality. What he's saying is there is something better, isn't he? And that's what he said. That's what he says to, to Martha. Martha, you are anxious about many, many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. Uh, yeah, the 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 guest has now become the host, hasn't he? And that's kind of the way things are with Christ, because we we will never be the one with more to give than Christ. We we'll, we can never be in that position of the host with Christ. We're always the one to receive. We're always the one who has less. And what our proper response is is simply to sit at Christ's feet and rest. That's what Mary is doing. She's simply resting. She's con- contemplating, glorifying Christ. So that's what's going. That's what's going on here. And what you see, then, the point that I'm coming to, is that work is good, and Martha's work is good, and Christ has commended all of. Uh, he's commended all of his his um, all the people that would follow him to show hospitality. And yet, there's something better than this work. There's something more ultimate than the than the work that he's given us to do, and that is to simply rest at, at his feet. That's that's kind of the message here. In that regard, again, you, we can see that rest is more is more ultimate than our than our work. Um, last so last week, Cameron he talked about. Um, so those, those are my my two points. Okay, is that that our rest is in in God. The Christian idea of rest is a rest in God. Is it a rest ordered towards God? It is a rest um, that is is for the sake of, of worshiping God, um, and that our rest is actually more ultimate than our work. That's what's going to you, you might say. That's what at the end of our life, what will matter is more than how we worked is how we rested, how we uh, how we worshipped Christ and worshipped God. Um, last week, so last week, I think Cameron talked about creation rest, Sabbath, Sabbath rest and creation. 
Um, at the end of time as well, you, well, you see that this coming out, this ultimacy of rest and creation. I mean, God, he doesn't start off, start off resting. We, I, you know, I think of nowadays the way my week is ordered. I start off with rest so that I can go to work the next day. I mean, you know, rest is for the point of work. Just practically speaking, that's how, that's how my week goes. Uh, but in creation, it's this, just the opposite. You start off with work, and work is for the purpose of rest, and that's where God ends, is in this kind of Sabbath rest. And it's the same for, it's the same for Christians at the end of time. In Revelations, it, it speaks of, uh, John speaks of um, Christians ending their labors, entering a, uh, an eternal Sabbath rest. That all this, all this labor is, has a point, and, it's, and the point of it is, is this eternal Sabbath rest. Um, the uh, <clears throat> I was trying to think of some some kind of practical advice to give on this, and my wife is better at practice. I'm better at theory. Um, and I and I'm happy. We'd be happy to. Sh- I'd be happy to share with you kind of how these things work out in our life. But I think the simple. I think the simple thing that we have found is, and and uh, as far as practice. How this actually works out in our life is that it, it, it does take an effort, an energy, a kind of a deliberate attempt to put this rest, uh, this kind of Sabbath rest, uh, f- foremost in our life. It doesn't. It actually doesn't come easy. Um, we uh, we spend a lot of time getting, trying to go to church, trying to occasionally read the Bible together as a family. Um, for me to speak to you about rest, does anyone know that that movie, uh, Catch Me If You Can? Okay, you know how that movie goes, right? Frank Abagnale, he's the master forger, right? And and then eventually the FBI, they hire the they hire Frank Abagnale to to detect forgeries, right? I mean, this is kind of how I this is this is this is my position in telling talking to you about rest. I'm kind of like, okay, I've done everything wrong. <laughs> So you know maybe somehow um, you know I can help you with that. Um, here is, but anyway, here's here's my encouragement to you is to is simply to persevere, to persevere in things like uh, like you like we are, are doing now to worship together with the church. Um, in the middle of church today, and that's not it's not easy. In the middle of church, I was still refereeing between uh, who got the you know the little armrest in the middle of the pew, right? <laughs> I mean. Rest doesn't come easy, <laughs> right? Um, but but don't don't give up on that. Persevere in those things. That is where we find our our rest in Christ at church, worshiping corporately together. Uh, same thing at home, worshiping together at home, um, even if it if it is you know, just those few minutes uh, together after dinner, reading the Bible, which we don't we don't get to very often, not as often as we should. And those, uh, and also those few minutes reading the Bible alone, worshiping, resting in God and His Word alone. Um, any comments or questions about that? I'll stop there. That's kind of what I had to share with you. That all seemed clear. All right, got one more author for you, and then I'll close this. I'll pray for us then. Anyone know who Jonathan Sachs is? Rabbi, uh, uh, excuse me, Oliver Sacks. Jonathan Sacks is a rabbi. Um, Oliver Sacks was a, uh, he was a, I think he just died. I think he may have just recently died. So he was a, Oliver Sacks 
is a um, he, he's a well-known writer. He wrote uh, he wrote on all kinds of things, but he was really a medical writer. He's actually originally a doctor. I think he taught I think he taught medicine at, at NYU maybe. But he was also a writer, and he wrote a lot about people's medical conditions, people that were ill and suffering with diseases, as well as kind of he wrote some um, kind of some uh, personal memoirs as well. Um, Oliver Sacks. So Oliver Sacks is turns out he is this. Um, at the end of his life, he he's a secular Jew, um, he's a homosexual, and he's estranged from his family for all his fame. And he and uh, if you go, if you Google his name, you'll you'll see. I mean, he's he's kind of all over the internet, and he's won all kinds of awards and all kinds of praise. And and for all of this, all these things, um, he comes to the end of his life, and. Um, and uh, and this is what he says. This was a, uh, an article that he that he wrote uh, just a few years ago. It's very interesting. He grew up in a um, he grew up in a in a Orthodox Jewish family where observing the Sabbath and all these rules were just you know for him very kind of oppressive. Um, and uh, and that was part of his that was part of his kind of renunciation of his of of, of his Jewish identity his Jewish religion. Um, at the end of his life, so he's just, at the end of his life he's estranged from God, um, from creation, and from his family. And it's interesting what he says to me. He says this. He says um, and now. Weak, he has cancer at this point as he's writing this. And now weak, short of breath, my once firm muscles melted away by cancer. I find my thoughts increasingly, not on the supernatural or spiritual, but on what what is meant by living a good life and a good and worthwhile life, achieving a sense of peace within oneself. And I find myself, my, my thoughts drifting to the Sabbath, the day of rest, the seventh day of the week, and perhaps the seventh day of one's life as well, when one can feel that one's work is done and may in good conscience rest. It's kind of it's a powerful statement to me as a father, um, you know, working through these things with our family, that 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 the things that he did. That he, in many ways, resented that his, you know, with his family growing up, um, they still came back to bear uh, at the end of his life. That this this Sabbath rest, it actually this, something that seemed oppressive to him growing up, at the end of his life, at the end of, of of all this, that's what comes back to him. That's what that's what he remembers. So powerful was um, was the Sabbath rest that he had observed with his family. Um, I'd love to say he, you know, he converted to Christ at the end of his life. That's that's not the story there. But it does it does speak to the power of um, of a Sabbath rest. I think. Any uh, any comments or questions about that? Anyone anyone here that's that doesn't have any problem finding rest <laughs> at the end of the day? Read a book years ago, having a merry heart in a Martha world. Okay. Because. And what was the advice? Well, it, it's it's a challenge yeah. every day. I mean, we you know, this is spot on with you know the the things that we have to do. Mm-hmm. 
just fill the calendar and it gets heavy. Mm-hmm. You know, in your natural state, you want you want that rest and you need it from him. That it's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. It's what a, to say no to. It takes a it's amazing how much planning and effort mm-hmm. it takes to get to to that point of rest. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else? Questions? I'll just say, yeah. Martha seems, there's such a tension there, but she seems so sensible. You know, yeah. It seems like something that most of us would probably do, an attitude we would take. And there's a tension in this story that I just don't think will ever go away. So I grew up in, in Calvinism and Calvinist churches, and you know the Protestant work ethic is really the Calvinist work ethic. It's not the Lutheran work ethic, and and so I, you know, I have always, you know, when I when I read that story, to me, I see Martha's the Calvinist. I mean, she is out there getting it done, um, and yet, yeah, I mean, so it seems kind of natural to me to to sympathize with her. You know, yeah. all the. Think in, a little bit in defense of work, not really, but, but um, you know, I think a, a, lot, of well, what, a lot of what yeah. you're describing here seems like unforced errors. I mean, we, you know, the scheduling, yeah, we're scheduling. Yeah. We, we, you know, look around and you know the communities where we live and and you know see parents concocting mm-hmm. social events for their kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, where there are already too many to. I mean, it just never seems to. Yeah. You know, it's like a, a hockey stick. It just yeah. It goes up and up and up. And up, and up and, and, yeah. Um, you know, and I don't, yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't necessarily, necessarily understand it, um, but but I see yeah. it, and and uh, you know, there just never seems to be any end in sight. And in a generation from now, yeah. be just that many more, and that yeah. many more. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I, that's where I haven't figured out. Marty and I certainly haven't figured out kind of what the solution to it is. It's kind of it is the problem of meritocracy. In other words, we all want our kids to do well in life. Do well, in, and you start backing up from there. You know what that means, what that's going to require, and it's going to require, you know, a good job, and a good job requires good education. Good education require, um, you know, it's going to require a good resume to get into college, which means good grades, but also nowadays means being on the, you know, being in the key club and being captain of the team, football team, and being, you know, all these things. But, and, but there's an yeah. ending with, with that. You know, the yeah, yeah. Job or the or the whatever. You know what yeah. I'm talking about is, all right, we're going to sign our kid up for ballroom. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we're going to have a the same two night, hours yeah. before ballroom get all these people together and go yeah. to college. Yeah. Yeah. And then after just ballroom, needless. everybody's going to go right. to ice cream and, and right. And I'm just like, are, seriously, we turned a one hour event into yeah. four or five hours once a week. You know, right. Who in their who in their right mind would yeah. would think of that? And, and yeah. Women. Yeah, we've never done things like that. Well, this is a good way. Everybody's got an extra four hours. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it seems yeah, like yeah. I mean, we're doing it. it to ourselves. Oh, we're totally. Right. Yeah. Self inflicted wounds. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Um. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Sabbath rest that you have promised us in yourself. We thank you for your Son who serves us in order that we may rest. Help us now as we go out, as we go to worship you, as we go out to our homes. Uh, 
Holy Spirit, help us to to be able to rest in you, to uh, to enjoy and to desire that rest that you have promised us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.